Lord, we know that you are a holy God, that you do not tolerate uh, sin in your midst, Lord, that you uh, call us to absolute purity and also absolute love and patience. Lord, you, you command that we would love others as you have loved us and that we would uh, strive after godliness in every aspect of our lives. And that's good. That is our heart. That's our desire. And that's why we're here. We know we need to grow. We know we fall far short of the holiness to which we've been called to individually and as a church. And we want to change. And I pray that you would help us to change through your word. That, that tonight you would expose what's, what's wrong in us, that we might individually repent. But even you'd use your word. Uh, to, to change us as a church, to deepen convictions, to, to, to crystallize our thinking, give clarity to our discernment, that we would be able to discern what is your will, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Lord, we pray that you would root out every vestige of sin, every vestige of his hypocrisy and indolence, that we might be conformed to the image of your Son. We pray these things in Christ's name. Well, the words I'd like to direct your attention to this evening are found in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 18 through 29. Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel or messenger of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. Say this. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance. And that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the children, sorry, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we've now arrived at the fourth church in Asia Minor that receives its performance evaluation from Christ. So far we've examined the church of Ephesus that was commended for its discernment, for its labor, for its endurance, and yet 
despite all its great strengths, it had missed the main point. It had, it had lost its love that it had at first. We also looked at the church of Smyrna, which uh, was commended for its endurance and suffering. And nothing negative is said about this church, but the Lord does give a warning and basically saying, brace yourself because it's only going to get worse. And the third church we looked at last week, the church of Pergamum, this was commended for its steadfastness and suffering, but was criticized because it was tolerating some false teaching. There were a number of people in the church uh, who labeled themselves the Nicolaitans and were holding to this uh, false teaching that was akin to Balaam and his teaching. And this morning, we'll look at the church of Thyatira. Morning, the evening. I'll just, I'll just say afternoon, midnight, through, <laughs> who knows what I'm going to say. Today, <laughs> uh, we'll look at the church of Thyatira in which uh, Jesus' evaluation focuses particularly on the judge, on judgment. Judgment's really the theme that's throughout this uh, letter and, it, it, and discernment and making um, a judgment based upon what Christ sees and into the depths of these people's lives, even that which might be hidden from human eyes. And this is seen, actually, in the theological introduction. If you look uh, at verse 18, it says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, now, if you recall from the description of Christ in chapter 1, the eyes like a flame of fire refers to Christ's ability uh, to um, judge justly, like a flame will cut through paper or you know, even through metal if it's hot enough, right, in uh, welding or whatnot. Christ's eyes like a flame of fire, and it signifies his just judgment, just like fire is a symbol of judgment. It describes his perfect discernment. As it says in Isaiah 11:3, he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Right? So he, Christ sees through every motive, he sees every action, everything that takes place, he understands, he knows it. And his judgment will be based upon that absolute omniscient understanding. And the feet being described as burnished bronze speaks to his absolute authority. In his judgment, he will also be unwielding. Uh, he will not be flexible. Either you are obedient and are blessed, or you are disobedient and you will be disciplined. And when Christ returns, he will bring every nation under his authority. He won't tolerate any rebellion or disobedience. It says he will actually rule with the rod of iron. And that's extended, actually, later on in this letter to the church. And really, both of these descriptions emphasize Christ's coming judgment. He will come in judgment upon the earth and judge according to his perfect discernment. And we'll see how this uh, description of Christ relates to the church as we go through the letter. First of all, just notice the strengths in verse 19. He says, I know your deeds. Your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So Christ praises them remarkably for four things. And the four things he praises them for are 
really pinnacles of Christian virtue. These are all very significant things that would really define what it means to be a Christian. First, he mentions their deeds. right? So this is a church that lives out their faith, something that many Christians today struggle with. Uh, in that there's a disconnect with what they believe and how they actually live. For instance, there are, are, are many who firmly believe that they should be giving to the church, that it's right to do so. And yet, month after month, they just say, well, it's just kind of a tight financial month. And, you know, I, I just, I'm just not going to give this week. Or there are husbands that firmly believe that Christ has made them an authority in their headship over the home. But fearing the bad, the bad opinion of their wives, the husband is afraid to tell his wife or his children no in things that he knows are not wise. And therefore, because of his fear of them not liking him, he abdicates his authority to their preferences. Or there's Christian women who truly believe that they should submit to their husbands in all things. And they do, as long as... He agrees with them. That's not submission. Like they believe it in principle when when putting into practice, it's like, well, that we make excuses. We justify it. So it's not enough for us simply to believe that God's word is true and it's good. He expects us to actually obey it, to follow it in every instance with no exceptions, no justification for disobedience. As the Apostle James says, we need to be doers of the word And not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. If we know something is true and say, yes, I believe that's true and good and right, and then don't obey those things, we are deceiving ourselves. As Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others. They may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And and Jesus is saying, this is a church, the church of Thyatira is a church that does that. They manifest their faith in their works. And and it's important to point out that a person's faith is not primarily manifested by the church they attend. It's not manifested by the creeds that they hold to or the books that they read. A person's faith is primarily manifested in what they do. Their choices show what they actually believe. There's a lot of people who say, I'm a Calvinist. I believe in God's absolute sovereignty, but when things go wrong... They then cave to fear. And their choices are based in fear rather than trust. And remarkably, we're told that we will be judged not by our doctrinal convictions or the strength of our affections. Jesus says repeatedly that we're going to be judged by our works, by our deeds. Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen: For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Romans 2.6, he will render to each one according to his works. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 2.10. And then Revelation 20, verse 12, describes what this will look like when Christ opens the books of their deeds. So we need to recognize our judgment isn't just based on what we, of our declaration that we hold the Bible to be an errant. And authoritative. We're going to be judged not based upon our profession of faith, but what, how do we actually live? Our choices show what we actually believe. And Jesus is commending this church by saying, you do. I know your deeds. 
I know your good works. And so he's actually giving him a precursor to this final judgment, and it's positive. You're doing a great job. I know your works. He also commends them for their love. For displaying the greatest and most defining Christian attribute. Right? 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these is love. As Jesus said, by this they'll know you are Christians, by your love. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And unlike the Ephesians, they have not lost the love that they had at first. He commends them, not just for their works, but for their love, for their affection, for their devotion. He also commends them for their faith. Right, then faith, likewise, is one of the defining attributes of Christians. Right? That's why we're called believers. We believe, we trust in God. And, and those who are elevated in Scripture, are, as examples to follow, are typically those whose lives are defined by their faith. Or at least their critical decisions are defined by their faith, like Esther. Right? And you can go through the uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. And all of those great Christians or believers in the Old Testament were commended for what they did, for their faith. And, and Jesus is saying, this church, the church of Thyatira, you can join their ranks. Because you're a church that manifests genuine faith. He also commends them for their service. So they weren't lazy Christians. right? The, the 80-20 rule that you hear about, didn't apply to the church of Thyatira. That's 80% of the, sorry, 20% of the Christians do uh, 80% of the work, and 80% of the people in the church don't do anything. Like that's the 80-20 rule. That's not true here. Like they're all servant. Every member doing what it can so that it builds the body of itself up in love. Right? The church was known for people who wanted to live as slaves of Christ. Right? And Jesus said, the greatest, the greatest among you will be your servant. The one who, who considers himself a servant of all. And this church was known for its service. Like they were dedicated, they were humble, they were active. Right? Even the, the big lesson that Jesus wanted to emphasize to his followers on the night when he was betrayed was manifested in, in John chapter 13. When he humbled himself to wash their feet. And he tells them that, that they should dedicate themselves to serving one another in a, in a similar fashion. And this church, he says, you're doing it. You've got good works. You've got love. You've, your faith is evident. You're serving. And, and the church is also commended for its perseverance. Right? They aren't like the, the seed that was thrown on the rocky soil that sprouted in a moment and with passion and Pleasure as, it, as, it, as its leaves reached to the sun and then once the sun came out and it withered and fell away because it had no root. These Christians have persevered in their faith. Even through the trials they have, faith, that they have faced. And it, it, it proving that their faith is genuine. All right, and this is, this is a attribute that we need to, to, to treasure because it's almost extinct in the American church. I mean, it is so easy 
to give in and throw in the towel. To just quit when you, you don't see any progress. To finally yield to self-pity and discouragement and to take ourselves out of the race. To fight off those thoughts and say, it's not worth it. You're wasting your time. This church didn't give in. Persevered. I I love the example of Marie Durand. One of my favorite people in all of history. The teenage French Huguenot who, who was condemned because she was the sister of a Protestant pastor. And she was, I think it was she was 15 or so, and she was thrown into jail. And she was there for 38 years. In, in a room that was smaller than this one. And she, she wasn't released until she was 53. And she could have been released at any time if she would have just accepted the Roman Catholic Church as the true church. But she didn't give in. Instead of recounting, this word was inscribed on her prison wall, register, which means Resist. She resisted for 38 years. 38 years. <laughs> We're ready to give up after you know, a couple of months. 38 years. Like That's what we need to see as an example in the American church. Like, We're not going to give in after 10 years. Thyatira and church resisted this temptation to give up. They persevered, which actually leads to what I believe is the greatest commendation Christ gives, that their recent works were actually greater than the ones that they had at first. So they weren't just enthusiasts. These were Christians that were growing ever more fervent, again, in contrast to the church of Ephesus. They, their zeal was increasing. Brighter and stronger than it was at the beginning. And yet, despite all of these commendations, and these are extremely high commendations, despite all of them, the church is far from perfect. And and it's failing because of something our culture considers to be one of the highest virtues. And that's tolerance. Look at the weakness of the church. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. That was very interesting. Um, When I looked up the word tolerant in Webster's Dictionary, and it's there for you on the screen, uh, this definition is very helpful and intriguing. I think it's telling, actually. It refers... One definition, the capacity to endure pain or hardship, sympathy or indulgence for beliefs or practices differing from or conflicting with one's own, the allowable deviation from a standard. Fourthly, the capacity of the body to endure or become less responsive to a substance like a drug or a physiological insult or repeated use or exposure. Like tolerance to a virus. Also a relative capacity of an organism to grow or thrive when subjected to an unfavorable environmental factor. (laughs) The maximum amount of a pesticide residue that may lawfully remain on or in food. 
Now, what I find remarkable about this is that even Webster's suggests that tolerance is defined by negative infiltrations. Like it's it's not normal. It's not healthy. It's the ability to tolerate something that's not good for it. Tolerance in the church is a bad thing, which is why Christ calls it out here. Biblically speaking, tolerance is not a virtue. To tolerate sin, which is what we fear being contaminated by, is to violate holiness. And just consider, was God tolerant of Nadab and Abihu when they didn't follow his instructions? Or of Ananias and Sapphira? Or Uzzah when he wanted to grab the ark to keep it from hitting the ground? Did he just bear with their sin? Or Moses when he struck the rock? He says, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. He didn't just go, well, Moses, you've been pretty good most of the time. I'll overlook this fault. You did not uphold me as holy. You're done. God, God is not tolerant of violations of his holiness. In fact, holiness by definition is intolerant. And yet there's many churches today that pride themselves in tolerating sin. And just as the church in Thyatira that was so commendable for so many things, they tolerated a false teacher to remain in their midst and to continue to have influence. He says this, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. No, on a side note, anybody who proclaims themselves to be a prophet or a prophetess is almost certainly lying. <laughs> if a person's truly a prophet, they won't need to tell you. Like everybody will know pretty evidently over a very short period of time. Right? If, if they're proclaiming the world's going to be drowned in a flood and it doesn't rain, like, well. And if it does, well, you know, they were telling the truth. It should have been abundantly obvious that this woman wasn't a prophet of God by what she was teaching. Because rather than calling the, God's people to repentance and to holiness, she was telling them to do the opposite. She was calling them to immorality and idolatry. And we're not given the details, I think, for our good about what she was teaching and how she was twisting things. I think it's another example of what... Paul says in Ephesians 5.12 that the things that are done in darkness are shameful even to talk about. But Jesus does call this false teacher Jezebel, which is telling. It might have been her name, but most likely he's just alluding to the fact that this woman teaches the very same things that the most notorious woman in all of the Bible taught. In 1 Kings 16, it tells us that Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of Sidon, who was a priest of Astarte, or Ashtara, or Ishtar, Aphrodite, or Venus. It's all really the same god or demon. And King Ahab's marriage to her was really a turning point in the spiritual health of the nation. Most famously, you know, she sought to exterminate the prophets of Yahweh 
First Kings 18. She had that great confrontation with Elijah. She inaugurated the worship of Baal, the sun god, on a magnificent scale. 400 priests and prophets were basically uh, provided for at her expense. Like she paid for them. The, 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 the royal treasury paid for their existence and their service of this sun god in Israel. Her legacy is preserved in 1 Kings 21, 25. It says, Truly there was no one like Ahab who had sold himself by doing evil in the eyes of Yahweh whose wife Jezebel urged him on. His wife was the one behind all his evil. Sold himself by doing evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And the Jezebel noted in Revelation 2.20, likewise Jesus says, she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Now, I think verse 21 is actually one of the most precious verses in all Scripture. Especially for those who struggle with sexual temptations like this church did. And it's precious on two accounts. First of all, it doesn't excuse the sexual immorality. It calls it out for what it is and demands repentance. But secondly, it shows us that God mercifully gives sinners time to repent. He wants them to repent. He doesn't want to crush them. Sometimes God does smite people dead immediately, but, but usually God is patient. Right? Just even consider immediately after Israel's abominable sin, after receiving the, the, the glorious Ten Commandments and the law of God and Moses goes up to receive the rest of the law and they're committing idolatry and immorality in, in the worship of the golden calves. Immediately after receiving the law. He broke all of those commandments. And yet God says he will not destroy his covenant people because Moses pleaded for them. And as proof, he proclaims his name, his character to Moses. He says, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I love Second Peter 3, 8 and 9 as well. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason God has not come down as hard as he should is because he loves you and he wants to exercise patience so that you might repent. verse shows that God is merciful in giving sinners time to repent, but also that he's still intolerant of sin. Repentance is still necessary. He gives people time, but if they remain steadfast, if they remain hardened, and they refuse to do what they know is right, he will give them over to destruction, just like he did to Judas. And God is rather graphic in his condemnation for those who repent. 
refused to repent of their idolatry and sexual immorality. Verse 22. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. He's saying, I see it all and I will deal with it if you won't. I was actually a witness to, to, a, to a graphic discipline like this actually being carried out uh, in the life of someone I knew, some professed believers. My, my first job out of seminary was actually working at a Christian school and the previous headmaster actually was caught in an affair with the development director. He was actually an elder at a solid local church in the area, and, but he was very, very resistant to repentance. And the two guilty ones ended up divorcing their spouses and getting married to one another. And after they got married, the, that former elder, former headmaster, had the gall to come to the church and say, I'm repentant, uh, but I cannot now divorce my current wife, and so you need to accept us back into the church. Which he wasn't repentant at all. He was just blowing smoke. The church didn't yield, rightly so. But about a year into their affair, the woman's oldest child was diagnosed with cancer. And he died as a fifth grade student in that school. And then just maybe a year after that, that, that man, that headmaster, had a stroke and was, became, basically became a, a permanent, uh, permanently uh, disabled, uh, unable to use any of his limbs. Christ's warning to the Thyatirian Christians is that unless there is repentance, all who have engaged with this woman Jezebel's immorality will be struck with disease and die. And notice the reason he gives for this. That all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Like some of this sin might have been done in secret. Might have been hidden. Done on the weekends or at night when nobody else knew. People assuming that they had gotten away with their lustful and idolatrous cravings. But God wants this church to know he sees it all. He knows exactly what's going on. And he is the one that they should fear. Yes, yeah, sure, their family members might be grieved and hurt and ashamed to find out what their spouses were doing or their parents were doing. But they can't really do anything about it. Right? The rest of their peers might be disappointed and ashamed. But their peers really can't do anything about it except call them out for their sin. But God can do something about what they're doing. And what he's saying is he will. And I think this too should provide encouragement to us. Because we don't have to play the Holy Spirit in people's lives. And there are people who just are, are so afraid that there's hidden sin in people's lives that if they don't find it, they've failed. And that's not our job. And we should call out sin that we see and 
encourage people towards repentance, but we don't know, have to know what's going on behind closed doors. And we don't have to know if we're being lied to. We could be being lied to to our face. But the fact is, that's okay. We can sleep at night. God does know, and God says He will deal with the deceptive and the liars. If they refuse to repent, if they refuse to confess their sin, if they refuse to change, He'll deal with it. And so if you think somebody's hiding sin, you can certainly pray about your concern, and then put your concern into God's hands, and then go to sleep. Trust Him. Verse 24 is, is also important in this regard. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them. And we don't know what that is, and I think for our benefit, but it has to do with what this woman Jezebel was teaching. He says, you don't know these things. I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Right? God is saying, I know what's going on. I know, I know the guilty parties. I know the right parties. I know those who are rejecting the lies of this world, who are striving after holiness with all their hearts. And God doesn't overlook that. And he wants the people to know, you can rest in your faithfulness. Even as you see immorality in the church, you know it's there, but you can't put your finger on who's committing it. I know you're trying to be faithful, he says. I place no other burden on you. In other words, he's saying, just keep doing what you're doing. Of course, if there's sin, that's obvious, it needs to be dealt with. He also gives this final encouragement. Future hope. Verse 25, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, and as I also have received authority from my Father. The future hope that Jesus reminds his church of is that they are going to rule with Christ, with him, in his kingdom. And of course, this promise is only given to those who overcome, who keep his deeds until the end. Those who don't fall into sexual immorality and idolatry, embracing the culture around them. As, as Paul writes, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. They won't do it. God's not going to give them a pass. If they're not repentant, they're not going into the kingdom. They will be judged. And really, a life of unrepentant sin, any of these things, is really a life evidencing unbelief. The unrepentance shows that the person really doesn't believe the truth. But the contrast is also true. Those who keep his words hold fast that shows that they're genuine believers. And they will inherit the kingdom. And the rod of iron is, is an allusion to Psalm 2. 
where it says, Ask of me, I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And that, that the word nations that's used there, I will give you the nations as your inheritance, does not refer to geographical boundaries, but to people groups. Gentiles, literally. Psalm 2 promises that the Messiah will rule over all peoples on this earth. He will rule with absolute power. And Revelation, this section here, it extends that absolute rule to those who reign with him. Saints who overcome will share Christ's rule with him, is what he's saying. And I actually believe that the idea of the the rod of iron here actually is one of judgment and justice than simple authority and rule. That is, the saints will rule with Christ because they will be given the the ability to discern and to judge justly, just like he judges justly. The eschatological imagery of the rod is actually found in Isaiah 11 that describes the, the person of the Messiah. He says, he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. It's describing his coming judgment. With his words, the rod of his mouth, Just like the sword, the two-edged sword is a symbol of judgment through words. But he will pronounce words that are perfect, that are right, that are just. Because he sees everything. And Jesus promises his followers that they will be judges with him, right? Matthew 19, 28. Jesus says, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You'll sit with me and do what I'm going to do as the king. In the book of Daniel, after the Messiah comes, it says, Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Notice the connection. You get the kingdom and then you exercise judgment. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul applies this to all believers, not just the twelve. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And he says, if the world's going to be judged by you, are you not incompetent to try trivial cases? Referring to lawsuits within the church. Right? The saints, in other words, are going to be able to judge because they're going to be able to have the same discernment, the same ability to see right and wrong that Christ has. When they receive the resurrection bodies, they will rule with just judgment even as he does. And I think that's actually what's being referred to with the morning star. The word could be translated simply as the morning or the dawn. Right? 2 Peter 1.18 says, We have the prophetic word made fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Right? When you're able to see clearly, when you don't need the scriptures anymore, because it goes on to talk about the, the scriptures being finally revealed. So, 
until you can see clearly. So much so that you perfectly understand all that the Scripture says. So you no longer even need the Scriptures because they're written on your heart. Because one day you will. When you are, they, the saints will have such perfect discernment, they will be able to judge, not by just what the eye sees, but judge perfectly. So Christ warns the church of his coming judgment now, so that they might repent, and therefore they might participate with him in the judgment that he's going to um, mete out when he returns in the future. He doesn't want them to be condemned, but exalted in that day. So he calls them to repent. Let's pray. Father, we likewise don't want to be condemned. Lord, we want to hold the highest standard possible. We don't want to be self-righteous. We don't want to be prudish. But we also don't want to tolerate anything that is ungodly. We want to hold a high standard in our own lives and in the lives of this church. And Lord, we, ought, we do live in a very corrupt culture. And it, and it does feel like the lights are diminishing all around us. And so help us to burn all the brighter with a zeal for holiness. Lord, help us to see every, every aspect of our life where we need to change so that we would not compromise, that we would not be, that we would not be disciplined because of unrepentant sin. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.